It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. On Commons People this week, the Labour leadership race tightens up. Very difficult to imagine a prime minister or a leader who looks or sounds like me because there never has been one. Brexit battles begin again. That Her Majesty has signified her royal assent to the following act. European Union Withdrawal Agreement Act 2020. And Boris Johnson has some big decisions to make. Ideally, there would be more providers of infrastructure um, similar to, to the work that Huawei does. But the UK is looking very carefully at this, at this issue and we will be making final decisions soon. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hello Arj. Hi Paul. We've also got Rachel Wearmouth here. Hello. Hi Rachel and our guest this week is the Conservative MP for Hitchin and Harpenden, Bim Afalami. Hi, good to see you. Hey Bim, welcome back to the podcast. A lot's changed since you were last on in late October. Quite. How's it going? Well, it's not dull. Uh, and um, at the same time, it's, it's it's much less painful than it was last time I was on. <laughs> yeah, I bet. yeah, indeed. Well, we'll come to uh, the Conservative Party in a bit, but first of all, the Labour leadership contenders have been narrowed down further this week after outspoken Birmingham MP Jess Phillips dropped out of the race. Emily Thornbury also looks on course to be eliminated, leaving frontrunner Keir Starmer to battle it out with Lisa Nandy and Rebecca Long Bailey. Long Bailey has been spending time this week attempting to distance herself from Jeremy Corbyn. Here she is. I was asked that question about in terms of what I thought about Jeremy and I supported him because he was a kind, honourable, decent human being. He was different from any politician that we'd ever seen. But we lost the general election and we have to recognise that we do need to change. And certainly one of the things for me from our election campaign was the fact that our message... It spoke to helping the most vulnerable, and that's what we should do with a Labour Party, but it didn't talk about aspiration and about how our policies were going to raise people up and help them to achieve their dreams and aspirations. And that's the fundamental basis of the economic policies that I'll be putting forward. Paul, it's looking like a three-horse race. How does that affect things? Well, I think the really interesting thing about Jess Phillips's departure from the scene is that, yes, she ticked all the boxes about being bold and speaking truth to power was her phrase. Uh, and th- that was all fine. But that's all fine for a backbencher. In other words, in many ways, she sounded like a backbencher, not a leader of the Labour Party. And I think the thing about the whole Labour leadership contest is it does what primaries are meant to do. It weeds people out. It tests them. It stress tests them. And you found out quite quickly that, you know, there wasn't a lot of policy for Jess Phillips. You can't just survive on having a go from the back benches. There's got to be a bit of depth. There's got to be a bit of nuance. There's got to be a bit of a structure to your team. And, you know, it's been a lesson for her as much as, as anyone else in how those things are indispensable. What I thought was really ironic, though, was that Jess was the person who in many ways, sounded 
she was making the criticisms of Corbyn that Corbyn has made of the government. In other words, there was a lot of opposition and not a lot of solutions. There was a lot of, you know, um, passion, but not necessarily a lot of reason. And equally, I hate to say it, there was a huge social media presence. She was the number one on social media in this readership race. It didn't make a blind bit of difference. Again, another parallel with Corbyn. So all the things she accused Corbyn of are the tactics that kind of undermined her in the Labour leadership race. Um, so in a way, a lot of people from that wing of the party uh, are quite depressed. But I think in terms of the impact on the race, to get to your real question, which is, um, look, for Keir Starmer, it's good in the sense that almost certainly those people are now going to go behind him. And if there has been this more than 100,000 surge in members, as we said recently, a lot of those anecdotally from local parties seem to be people who are centrist. That can only help him. The downside is that if if he loses someone to the right of him in this contest, he looks like the only moderate and right winger on the platform. So there's an up and downside to it. Yeah, and has Rebecca Long Bailey kind of maybe reached the ceiling? Do you see Lisa Nandy taking more votes off Keir Starmer than Rebecca Long Bailey? Perhaps? That's a really tough one, you know, because um, in terms of those second preferences, it depends who comes ahead of who. And say Starmer's front runner, okay. The second place is really important. You can easily imagine a lot of Long Bailey people preferring Lisa. She's sort of soft left, softer left than Keir Starmer. I mean, these terms are kind of elastic. The public must think, what on earth are you talking about? But, um, <laughs> you know, within the Labour Party and within this leadership race, that kind of matters. Um, the The other way around, you know, if, if I would have thought Starmer might think, they're split, Lisa and Andy's people, between people who really want something imaginative and bold and different uh, and some those people who actually quite like a bit of the Corbyn project. So it's quite hard to call who their people are. I suspect quite a lot of momentum people will be behind Lisa and Andy, the, the chunk, the quarter that aren't behind Long Bailey. Uh, Rachel, you've been spending some time with Long Bailey this week. She's at pains to say she's not continuity Corbyn, but... How true is that? Well, I think I think her her main aim in the, in the campaign is to unite the left, and that means sort of staying as close to Jeremy Corbyn as she possibly can. Um, uh, but that kind of relies on the party being behind this kind of one more heave strategy, which um, a lot of them aren't. A lot of them are quite shell shocked, and they're thinking about either port in a storm, which may be you know the reliable Keir Starmer, or they're thinking about change in Lisa Nandy so I think one of um, Rebecca Long Paley's serious problems is that she doesn't have that personal vote that Jeremy Corbyn has you know Um, she doesn't have the sort of history of rebelling she doesn't have this long-term on the left history that that Jeremy Corbyn does and so she's kind of struggling to get the, the trust of that group um, and it was interesting at the, uh, her mem- members event in London that she kind of, a lot of this doesn't really come very naturally to her. She's not this big bombastic kind of character that gives these barnstorming speeches. It was interesting um, to see Ian Lavery speak before her and kind of really get the crowd on side. And then she came out afterwards and it was just a very different vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think she I think she might might struggle to get like people personally investing in Rebecca Long Bailey as the brand. And also she's she's coming out with policies like mandatory reselections. Which um is is a momentum policy and will be very popular with, with them. But that again that it's kind of I feel like Rebecca Long Bailey has perhaps judged the members to be in in one very specific place, which is kind of 
frozen in time back when Jeremy Corbyn uh, won the leadership when, you know, not all members might be feeling like that right now. They might be a bit sick of the division, actually, and might not want to be infighting all of the time. Um, I thought one of her, one of um, Rebecca Lombardi's biggest mistakes was to this 10 out of 10 comment, because I think like everyone... That's, um... Rating oh, Corbyn's leadership as rating Jeremy 10. Corbyn's leadership as ten out of ten and therefore faultless. I mean, she would say that she was very much misquoted and that like this has been blown out of proportion. But um, I think a lot of people who point out that the public are kind of only tuning in at this point and will hear just the headlines will have heard that and will not like it a great deal, considering they've just very much said a firm no to to Jeremy Corbyn. And I think a lot of Labour members who will have knocked on doors as well will know that Jeremy Corbyn's not popular. They know they need to punch through on the doorstep, don't they? That's the mm. point. And I, mean, I think Rachel made a really good point about Jeremy Corbyn's long history meant that he had a lot of goodwill, a banked goodwill within the Labour Party. Um, she hasn't got that sort of history. And yet what she does have share with Corbyn is, to be frank, a failure at, at, on the platform and speeches and rallies to sort of really punch through. And Corbyn got away with it because Corbyn would often turn up at these rallies throughout his whole career. Everyone would know Jeremy Corbyn was like the fourth speaker. You'd have someone really tub-thumping speech and then you'd come along this guy, Jeremy Corbyn, who made a sort of reasonable sort of, you know, the, the avuncular grandpa figure that we all know now. And, and that was his kind of special cachet. She doesn't have that and yet she doesn't have the punch through. And, that you know, you've got to have something to make you unique. Yeah, she's not retro and she's not barnstorming. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I just don't know where to start. I mean, Rebecca Long-Bailey, I, honestly. She's a gift for you, do you think? Oh, uh, to be honest, I feel, I feel sorry for the Labour Party, people on the left the Labour Party, insofar as they deserve someone a lot better to try and invest in. Uh, this is somebody who, as everybody knows, um, and I think Rachel sort of analysed it particularly very well, she's trying to take on the mantle of Corbynism without the the perceived good bits of Corbyn, taking all the bad. Uh, that's not going to work. Um, I think she's going to sink very quickly, personally. I've watched contests quite um, quite closely just because I'm a political obsessive and I love this stuff. And uh, having watched Lisa Nandy, um, Lisa Nandy clearly, well, not clearly, I suspect she could be a lot more honest about what she thinks the Labour Party needs to do. She's decided to go so far without really crossing the Rubicon as to that analysis, presumably because of the membership and the nature of it. But through that lack of bravery, I think will make it almost impossible for her to win. Her only chance of winning is to blow this open. And if she doesn't win by blowing it open, she's at least tried. Because a stat that I haven't heard enough people say, maybe because it's not as relevant as I think it is, suppose we'll find out, is when Owen Smith, you know, hardly God's gift to politics, when he stood against Corbyn in 2016, this was before an election defeat, he got 40% of the vote. Now that's 40% of the vote for Owen Smith. That tells me that the membership is not this sort of necessarily just as sort of hard left as, as many people in the Conservative Party or sort of non-aligned political people seem to think. It tells me that it may actually be winnable for somebody who is good enough, who's brave enough, who's smart enough, etc. And I, I happen not to, by the way, think that candidate exists at the moment. But what I'm saying is I, 
I personally don't take the view that this sort of, you know, this irretrievably so hard left that nobody saying something genuinely brave and taking on the party could win. Because if they don't do this, what they will find out, and I think Keir Starmer, who looks, you know, at the moment to be most likely, though obviously at the time of speaking, none of us know, is he's tried to buy off the left. And when you buy off the left, they're not all just going to go away and allow you to take the party to the centre. And he will find out that he is going to have to cleave to some pretty hard left positions and find it very difficult to move the party anywhere. So, But isn't the problem there, though, that Jess Phillips was that candidate you're talking about and she crashed and burned very quickly? Yeah, but I think your analysis first time was, was right. Yeah. Uh, just saying, I'm going to speak truth to power. Do you want Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister? Oh, well, it's complicated. Well, it doesn't sound like speaking truth to power to me. And she didn't have a campaign. She didn't have policies. She basically had you know, a very high profile, you know, media presence. But I'm afraid politics is more about organisation than people ever give it credit for. Yeah. I was going to say, um, how do Conservatives view Lisa Nandy? Because she's she's become a very serious contender and I haven't heard... Um, I've heard a lot, of, um, a lot of Conservatives speak about Keir Starmer, but not necessarily Lisa Nandy. Uh, to be honest, she's not that well known um, in the House of Commons. Now, look, I've only been in the House of Commons for, for three years, I, as, as I pronounce on, on who's well known, who's not. But, but um, she's, not, you know, she's not a House of Commons figure in that sense. She's not around a lot, partly because she's been on the back benches for a long time. And being on the back benches, just, and it's the same on, on our side as well, it's, it's, it's limited how well known you can be, unless you've, you've formally been a, a senior person on the front bench. Uh, but I think she, she clearly gets the northern midlands towns issue in a way that nobody else does but getting an issue and doing something about it and doing it in a successfully political way is is a completely different thing when you say she needs to blow it open or she she's stopping short of blowing it open what what do you exactly what i mean is if you are going to fundamentally change the labor party's approach to different types of people or on different sorts of issues you have to be brave enough to tell the party where they have been wrong and if you are unable or incapable of doing that then you aren't going to do it, even if somehow by some miracle you were to win. You can't then turn around and go, well, actually, I didn't say that before, but now I'm going to do it. You know, the, the core thing that you learn about, whether it be Boris Johnson, Tony Blair, successful politicians, when they win through their party is when they say, this is, going, this is how I'm going to lead this party. And you say it before you win. And that way you've got that mandate. And I'm afraid I don't see with any of the... You know, these are all people who are campaigning for Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister. Let us not forget that. Um, I don't see with any of them anybody who's going to present too much difficulty. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, well, Boris Johnson's Brexit deal has finally passed through Parliament and we're on course to leave the EU next Friday, January the 31st. But the rows over the next stage of negotiations are beginning to take shape with the UK warning it will not align with Brussels' rules and the Prime Minister in turn being told he must impose checks in the Irish Sea or face action from the EU. Meanwhile, the Cabinet has heard plans for a new post-Brexit points-based immigration system, which could see a lifting of the £30,000 salary floor for skilled workers. Senior MEP Guy Verhofstadt was in town this week. Let's hear what he had to say about a future trade deal. How far we we will uh, this will go is very difficult to say today because it will depend on uh, what the willingness is of uh, the uh, UK side also to comply with uh, uh, with a number of standards uh, in the European Union. Uh, we are always saying no tariffs, okay, no quotas, okay, but also no dumping. Huh? That's that are the three uh, elements. There are not two elements on the table. Uh, 
But and when uh, you talk about dumping, you're talking then about uh, state aid. You're talking or that can be state aid, that can be ecological standards, yes. that can it's be a whole, social it's a broad standards, range of yeah, things. Yeah, that are the, the the way we are doing. And uh, if Britain decides not to sign up to those things or to a lot of those things, what? It will be very difficult to have a broad uh, uh, free trade agreement at that moment. Uh, Paul. The next stage of Brexit negotiations are kind of beginning to take shape and it's looking like it's going to be quite fraught again. Well, we've had this big historic moment this week, which is easy to forget because it was like a sort of whimper rather than the bang um, because the House of Lords basically failed to go ahead with the whole Dubs Amendment and therefore at that point, you know, it went off to be to get become law and I think it's going to get royal assent tonight as we speak, Thursday, around six o'clock in the House of Lords. This, this magic moment will happen for a lot of Brexiteers. Um... Uh, so the next stage that everyone's thinking about is, to be honest, the tougher stage, isn't it? It's about real hardball negotiation with one of the most hardball organisations on the planet, which is Europe when it comes to trade. And, yeah, I can see the Prime Minister isn't bluffing about not wanting to extend, but there's going to have to be some kind of flexibility, I would have thought, within that agreement to allow almost the status quo in some sectors um, for, for beyond 2020. I can't see, to be honest, I can't see how he could possibly get away with doing anything else. However, maybe the pressure within his party will be to, to sort of be really hardline on it. I don't know. That's going to be one of the big questions of the, of the politics of the coming year. But he can't get away. Boris is brilliant at defying the laws of political gravity, OK? He's done it throughout his career, just as he defies the laws of real gravity or didn't quite on, on the... Zip wire. Um, <laughs> you know, you can't get away from the fact that this is essentially an, a, a question of access and alignment. You get more market ex- access, the more alignment you agree to, and less if you don't. And so he's just going to have to work out where that balance lies for him politically, economically. Um, and I don't know, it'd be interesting to see what, what Bim thinks, but I, I think that you know there's lots of people who are saying, look, we got to, you, if you're going to try and have your cake and eat it, this bit you're going to have to swallow. We need close alignment if we're going to have m- as much access as possible. Yeah, Chancellor Sajid Javid raised some eyebrows with an FT interview at the weekend in which he made clear there would be no alignment with EU rules and business groups are not very happy about it. What do you make of it, Bim? Well, I think the question of... I, 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 I think Paul's analysis is... is is accurate insofar as how the dichotomy is framed. The question of alignment, however, we always need to understand there is a nuance to this, which is, I do not, you know, when Sajid Javid, the Chancellor, says there will be no alignment, what he's really saying is that you're not just going to diverge for the sake of doing so. What he means is there's not going to be forced alignment where it doesn't make any sense. So there will just have to be an analysis, analysis sector by sector, you know, depending on Britain's you know, ability to shape the rules, for example, in a global context rather than, say, a European one. So there are some rules that, that look European but are actually global. Say Basel Capital Rules, actually, they're mostly around and done at Basel Committee. But there are other things that are European. There are other things that are more domestic. So it's, it's a hugely complex space. But I think the key thing that the government's been so clear on, and on this, I think, even people like Mark Carney and various others have been, have been very clear. There are some sectors where to just accept European rules would be damaging, not just politically, which I think is clear, but economically damaging. And it's about understanding for each thing, the politics, the economics, and working out where you get to. But in terms of the, the broader sort of time frame, uh, 
what I hear and speak, you, you speak to people who, who know the Brussels you know, characters much better than I do, um, they will say that it is, of course, doable to do something by the end of the year. The question is, are both sides willing to do, you know, make political judgments quickly or not? And I'm afraid none of us know the answer. Um, Rachel, we, th- we thought new Tory MPs would kind of pull Johnson towards a soft Brexit, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, uh, well not yet. I think, I, think it's kind of, I think that might start to emerge um, in coming months and years when they kind of, when they look at the mix of industry or um, the different sectors in their constituencies, I think they'll probably start to pressure the PM a little bit more when they know more about that. Um, I think also the Scottish Conservatives might want to push for um, looser immigration rules because a lot of rural areas up there will want more immigration from the EU, not necessarily less. Um, One of the interesting stories that circulated recently is um, the prospect of like parallel EU and US talks. And I wondered kind of how that would change the political dynamic of that. I would allow Boris Johnson to put pressure on the EU or if it would allow a sweetener to certain yeah, constituencies. This is, this is really, really important. So you're completely right. There is, you know, that is the plan very much to have parallel talks with the EU and the US. And the reason for that isn't just a sort of simple leverage issue. It's really a battle between two approaches. You have a sort of outcomes-based approach on the sort of US side. And that's, by the way, the case with most countries and blocks in the world. And then you have a sort of much more prescriptive approach, which is what the EU has. And fundamentally, Britain is trying to make sure that the European Union knows that the outcome-based approach is one that is more globally accepted, allows us to do the free trade deals across the world, etc. But of course, the European Union is very wedded to their own approach. So it's, it's less about per se, the US or the EU as countries or groups of states. It's more about the type of trade agreement that you do, um, because it is difficult to, 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 in parallel, do two things that are so different in their style, because obviously doing free trade agreements around the world will require you to be, you know, sign deals with several countries in quite a short period of time. And Bim, what did you make of uh, the Prime Minister's decision to end the, the two-year transition period that would start from next year for low-skilled immigration. I think the Cabinet was told about that this week, that yeah, I mean, all the immigration rules would come in in January next year. I mean, the, the key thing is is it's about the, the, the type of rules you, you end up with. It's been quite clear. We're going to have a point-based system. We've asked the MAC, the Migration Advisory Committee, to look at it, I think. Yeah. and But with a pretty clear brief to design a, a point system. Don't forget... And I think people often mischaracterise this. A point system does not mean the highest earners get in first and the lowest earners get in last. It does not mean that. It means you are able to look at your whole mix. So, you know, we need lots of care workers or whatever. And they don't necessarily earn a huge amount, but they're very valuable to the country and society or nurses being another example. And there'll be other highly paid people who maybe not be as, as needed. And so I think it's that mix that will be that a points-based system allows you to to do. Uh, away from Brexit, Boris Johnson has plenty on his plate with decisions expected within weeks on whether to back HS2, whether to allow Huawei into our 5G network, and of course the cabinet reshuffle. The HS2 issue has especially split the Tories, with even new MPs deciding to put their heads above the parapet. Here's one of them, Crew and Nantwich MP Alex Stafford. Oh, we need, we must have better transport in the north. We must have the right transport, connecting our villages, our towns and cities first. We must concentrate on that before a grandiose scheme that goes down to London 
doesn't connect to Heathrow, doesn't connect to the channel of Tuttle, destroys 300 homes, destroys some ancient woodlands. What we need is better connectivity now across the constituency. Paul, it's actually going to be a big few weeks coming up in which we're going to start seeing the shape of Johnson's government to come up. Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, after you know, after a period of being under the surface, the, the submarine prime minister will have to surface on things like Huawei, on things like HS2. There's going to be some big calls to be made. Um, all the intel so far seems to be that on HS2, he'll probably go along with the main thrust of the recommendations uh, and but build in some kind of pause. It sounds like a pause for a, the, the next bit, um, which will satisfy, I suspect, different bits of his, his constituency MPs. Um, but on, on Huawei, I mean, the really interesting thing about Huawei, and it was at the lobby briefing today, is that um, it looks like we're going to get a decision very soon, probably next week. Uh, and that is a very good example of how far can Boris Johnson stand up to Donald Trump in the real world. And it sounds to me as though, um, actually, despite what all of Johnson's critics say, he probably will stand up to the US. And it's our intelligence uh, agencies who are the driving force in that. And Mark Sedwell, obviously a national security advisor formerly, um, allegedly exploded last week when the Americans tried to tell him how to do his job. Um, and they came over with some what they thought was new intelligence. And of course, our spooks had already seen that intelligence and had ba- and, and priced that in. Um, and it sounds like the interesting thing is that some anarchists or s- sort of an assessment of what's going on will say, ah, this is the deep state holding on to its control. You know, the intelligence agency is overriding, you know, the political demands of, of, of MPs. Well, actually, it may well be that the technocrats are saying, look, there really is a market failure here. There's not many... Global mobile phone companies can do this 5G tech. Huawei's one of them. Ericsson's another. There is no alternative if you want to keep costs down. And our spooks are happy with the security risk. If that's all fine, why shouldn't we do our own decision and stand up to Trump as, unfortunately, the New Zealand and Australians haven't? I mean, they've caved. Yeah, Bim, is it risky to go for Huawei, do you think, to stand up to Trump with when we're looking down the barrel of UK-US trade talks. Yeah, I'm going to do a risky thing for an MP, which is admit areas that are outside your immediate competence. You know, I don't have a, an intelligence background. I, I, I really, you know, cannot assess really as to the, the details on this. It's obviously a finely balanced decision. There's been a huge debate in government over it for, what, the best part of a year, 18 months? So, you know, I understand that. I mean, I think that the core question from my perspective is, if it isn't Huawei, then who is it? And how much does it cost? And is it possible? And if we can, and if the answers to those things, if it's not Huawei, are not acceptable, then the question is, okay, how can you do it with Huawei in a way to minimise risk in all sorts of ways? I don't think, I think that's broadly speaking a sensible approach. But at the same time, as I, as I say, I'm not an intelligence expert. And I don't know, there, is, there are strong feelings on this subject from some people, you know, Tom Tugendhat, Bob Seeley, people like this who really don't like it at all. Um, and these are people, as I say, who have intelligence uh, um, forces backgrounds in ways that I don't. So I respect their view hugely. But I ask the political question, which is, we can't just not do something because the Americans don't like it. We have to make our own decision. And if our spooks who are some of the finest in the world who have the interest of this country at heart think it can be done in a safe way, then then I can't really see why not. Yeah, uh, some of your fellow 2017ers have been noting how ambitious some of the 2019ers are, giving speeches, <laughs> with, speeches without notes in the Commons already and, and so on. But it is interesting for the Tories because you've got 2010 are kind of semi-new, then 2015ers are really new, then you're, you guys are 
definitely new, and then you've got a load of 2019s. It's kind of a tricky situation for the government to balance those. I mean, just on the intakes, I I suspect that um, this is a bit like school, where you get the newbies who come in, and everybody has a go at them and says how pushy they are, (laughs) and how annoying they are, and how they push past you in the lunch queue. We've all been to school, and we all know that we were all the same when we were that. You know, there, there is there is a level to that in Parliament. Um, but I've been very impressed with 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 several of the you know the, the, the 2019 intake, which is a very big intake, um, has broadly speaking three groups of people in it. You've got those who are sort of insiders, former spads, that sort of thing, um, or if not spads, very you know, in and around Westminster. Then you've got a bunch of people who've had careers outside but have been involved with the party for quite a long time. Then you've got a third of people who were in the seats that sort of came with the wave and didn't necessarily expect necessarily to be here six months ago. So it's an interesting mix to manage all that. Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating the reshuffle because I think the, the the one sensible thing David Cameron did was not change his cabinet ministers very much early on. He didn't do many reshuffles, and you know civil servants love that they want stability. They, you know, there's no point having eleven welfare ministers in nine years, or you know however many Europe ministers we had in that period, because um, they simply can't get on and do the job. And civil servants go nuts because there's all the change about personnel. And if you want to really do things as Prime Minister says, and do things and not just talk about them. Give people these big jobs, do this reshuffle and keep them in post for quite a while, maybe two years each, and say, I'm not going to do another reshuffle for another two years. Yeah, interesting. Boris Johnson is apparently waking up to the idea of, well, he has been woken up to it for a while, I think, but he's making new efforts to bring the union together as calls for Scottish independence continues. Yes, I think this will be a, a theme of the entire parliament and it's really fascinating. We're, we're awaiting what's happened with the, the Dunlop review. So this is the review, the Conservative peer Lord Dunlop has been carrying out to see how the UK government can strengthen the union. Um, it's not thought to include a new department for the union, but will include perhaps a minister, maybe maybe Mike, Mike, might be a job for Michael Gove, Aberdonian. Um, it's thought to include like more political visibility so you'd see um more Tory MPs working with devolved administrations more um and holding more meetings in the um all different nations of the country um I think a lot of conservatives up in places like Scotland are a bit concerned that um this investment blitz that we've heard about might include you know things are a bit gimmicky like union jacks on sausages and things like that and they're kind of saying that's not the way to tie the union together really strongly but one of the things I think um, Boris Johnson does get here is is being like really attacking on the politics side Um, I didn't see a lot of it from Theresa May she would often just um, notice a few things that were happening up in Holyrood and kind of wait for her to be attacked by um, Ian Blackford that very much did not happen at PMQs this week I think um, Boris Johnson where he was um, quite smart was kind of having a pop at Ian Blackford first getting his little I think he said oh he's about to about to rise like what was it a shooting a shooting a pheasant shooting to the to the heavens or something I can't remember his exact word and but it kind of he got his joke in there first and one that one thing that really did recognize was how different the media is up in Scotland his clip will come first now instead of Blackford's attack and I think being aware of little things like that will make a lot of difference just understanding the politics and the landscape up there. Yeah, and he seems to have a new uh, damning stat for the SNP every week as well, Johnson, uh, about about their record in, in, in government up in Scotland. I think he came out with some more today, more this week, but I can't even remember what it was on. But, uh, Bim, you've been working on this issue as well yeah. as part of the Constitution Reform yeah. Group. What's your big idea? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, well, I've always... I've taken the view for a long time that 
the problem with the devolution settlement isn't per se the devolution settlement, it's how the UK government has behaved in relation to it. So just because there is devolution in Scotland or Northern Ireland or Wales does not mean that ministers on areas that might be devolved in large part shouldn't go there, shouldn't hold meetings with stakeholders, shouldn't see members of the public, because I think we've really got to do more of that, because I worry, you know, very much, and, you know, my Scottish Conservative colleagues are, you know, to be very honest, you know, pretty worried about the situation, and they don't, you know, they're not panicking, but it is, it is difficult, it is tricky. The SNP obviously had a good, good election, so um, we are going to lean in. From what I understand, um, you know, number 10 and, and people at the highest level are very focused on this, and I, I look forward to the review, but I, I really do think a visible presence of the UK government in every single part of the United Kingdom is really important, because we are one nation, and if you sort of retreat to your constituent bits, then it's harder when, you know, if and when a second referendum comes at some other you know, future date, to say, oh, we're all together. People say, well, I haven't, I haven't seen you for 10 years. You know, so... I really think it's important. And, and by the way, that should be as much English and Welsh MPs going to Scotland. And, you know, we've really got to do that. We shouldn't be, you know, I did question time for the first time in Murray in Scotland. It must have been, I don't know, nine months ago or whatever. And it was really interesting because obviously I was slightly worried and maybe I shouldn't have been about doing it, you know, off home turf. So, but actually the response was really, you know, people were nice and they, they were glad that an English MP from Hertfordshire was, was up doing it. You know, I think we've just got to do as much of that as we can. Yeah, I think one of the things the SNP is really good at is, is their own PR outside of Scotland. Um, you know, everyone kind of regards Nicola Sturgeon as this fantastic leader and they have quite a good reputation as a, a competent party, even if it, even if that's more so outside of Scotland than it is with, within Scotland sometimes. And I, I think that kind of... There's not so much anybody any UK leader rallying the cause of, of the union as there is um, the cause of Scottish independence being rallied outside of Scotland. Yeah, I agree. And what visible presence? I mean, what, what form does that take? Are we going to replace all the EU No, 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 I don't mean... No, 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 no. this is really plaques. important. I don't mean I don't mean gimmicks. I don't mean all that stuff. I mean being part of the political conversation in every single constituent part of the United Kingdom. And I just think that that can... You know, people who are no one, no one understand this stuff better than I do will come up, you effectively fill the gaps as to how you do that. But I just think it's so important. A bit like the Prime Minister turning up to the West Midlands and talking about, I don't know, buses. Nobody would think that was weird, but I, I, that's probably the province of the West Midlands Mayor. But nobody thinks that's weird because the Prime Minister is the Prime Minister and or the Transport Secretary. Do you see what I mean? I, mean, I know that's a bit of a trite example, but we've really got to get out of the mindset of, you know, we can't go to... To Scotland, all that. No, we are, we are one country, and of course things are devolved, and that means you work with the devolved administration. Of course you do, a bit like you'd work with you know anybody across. I just think it's very important. We can't allow this to go because this is going to be a critical parliament for the future of the union. Yeah, do you see the the Scottish twenty twenty one elections as as like a, a watershed? Oh, of moment? course, it's key. Yeah, it's key because I think that if the SNP wins a majority again in in twenty twenty one, that would be sort of twenty years in power for pro independence parties in in Hollywood. The one thing I would say, and this was one of my Scottish MP colleagues said this to me, despite the last election of the headwind of Brexit on the Conservative Party in Scotland, which was considerable, and the SNP running quite strong, you know, the SNP are struggling to get above 45%. And interestingly, that's very similar to when you look at Canada and Quebecois, and the Quebecois and the Bloc Quebecois, who are the the equivalent of the SNP over there, it was quite interesting. A similar thing happened to them. They they lost the first referendum. They then surged, but they just could never break that 
that majority. Um, and actually, I think Canada, you know, then over a period of time, a sort of, you know, I think they've become more settled with their constitutional relationship with them. So, I, so it's, it, I'm not convinced that there is this massive surge of, of independence movement. What we need to do is to make sure that people see, continue to see there's a value in the great union. And that's a combination of the economic, the social, the emotional, the political. Do you think then, just a last one on this, talk about the vote share of the SNP. Do you think they need to win more than 50% in an election before they, they have that mandate? That I don't think it's about mandate. I yeah. think it's an indication of support, right? Yeah. So despite all the headwinds that the Conservative Party had in Scotland, the last general election, um, you know, the SNP didn't, in terms of overall vote share, their votes very efficiently spread. So under first past the post, they can do very well. But actually, overall vote share, they're not really increasing. So that is hope. Right, quiz time. Yay! And in honour of Paul's brilliant scoop this week about Corbyn's aide, Carrie Murphy, going on holiday to Vienna. Day that before was the so election, good. Yeah. This week's quiz is all about politicians' holidays. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Those are too enthusiastic, Paul. Um, question number one. Boris Johnson and Carrie Simmons went on holiday to the exclusive Caribbean island of Mystique over the Christmas break. But how much does the villa they stayed in cost to rent for a week at that time of year? Jeez. One thousand five hundred. I'd say eight grand. <laughs> Do you want to have a guess, Ben? Maybe more actually. Four thousand pounds. Twenty thousand pounds. Christ. For a week. Uh, Downing Street's not said whether Johnson paid for his stay or, or received hospitality from its American owners, but he did pay for his own seat in economy on British Airways to get oh, there. Nice. One thousand three hundred pounds. Or not so nice as the case may have been. <laughs> <laughs> I was being ironic. Why not go business if you're paying for your own? Anyway. Um, He's famously uh, tight, though, isn't he, Boris? Um, what song did Theresa May belt out in the piano bar of a luxury Italian hotel while on holiday in 2017? Oh, God. My way? <laughs> <laughs> May way. Um, um, oh God, what is this? What is it? Oh, this is so Gosh, it's the thought of Theresa May belting out in a, a song, know, which I is... Know. God, what was it? Dancing on, Queen. That, I guess um, Dancing Queen. Misery. Is God Save the Queen? What? The national anthem. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, of uh, course. Resident pianist to, to be honest, actually, that isn't that surprising. Is yeah. It? <laughs> you can picture it. The resident pianist David Ferroni told the son, as soon as the first note started, she was on her feet with her husband, proudly singing along. Everyone stood. There you go. Uh, who offered Tony Blair their Caribbean villa in August 2003? Oh, oh Cliff what? Richard. Yes. Yes. Cliff Richard. I remember that. Boom, you've won the quiz. Is there one with Gibbs? Wasn't yeah, he? There we are. Yes, well, it's, it's, but Blair, what I find quite, I'm, I'm going to ask journalists, what, what is this fascination with politicians' holidays? I find this really weird that you guys are interested in it. It's like the I pri- don't give them monkeys. We don't have any. Yeah, well, that's why. It's also like the price. It's like the price you of milk. To- you know, like if you ask a, a politician how much does a, a a pint of milk cost, you know, you kind of it's like an indication of their everyman status. I don't know because they're always really weird. I think oh, and like yeah. Tony Blair's off to stay in Cliff Richards' mansion and Berlusconi's mansion. Yeah, Remember that Berlusconi's hanging around with cracker. a bandana on. Yeah, uh, Theresa May's belting out "God Save the Queen" in a piano bar. They're always really odd. Bin. That's why they're fun. <laughs> well, I don't know. I reckon if I got reports of your last three holidays, there'd probably be some quite. <laughs> Weird things there too. Cameron obviously Perhaps. always <laughs> Cameron always held some fish, didn't he, in Cornwall? I mean, you know, yeah. and, he, and he's you know that's such a Cameron thing to do. Is, is Damer pa- Bay in Cornwall. Exactly. There we are. His, his uh, pasty legs and his, his shorts was always the and best. his blue polo, yeah, polo shirt, Classic. pointing at things. Yeah, 
pointing, pointing at various things. <laughs> Very Dave. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. We'll just leave you with Rebecca Long-Bailey answering one of the key questions of the Labour leadership race. Have you ever taken illegal drugs? Oh, well, I've been to Amsterdam. Okay. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.